Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. We've all been trying to get over our Trump addiction in the weeks past since January. It can be difficult because we were so hooked on a guy who made news not just every day, but every hour. But in the last week or so, the American news media and those who follow American politics have had something else almost on a Trumpian level to focus on. And that is the story of Matt Gates, Florida Republican, Trump loyalist, who is under investigation, it turns out, by the Justice Department for breaking federal sex trafficking laws. He denies that and denies all charges, including claims that he had relationships with young women who'd been recruited online and that he'd had sex with a 17-year-old girl. He denies it. The Justice Department are investigating it. And this weekend, it proved that it had broken through because it became the subject of a sketch on Saturday Night Live where one of the cast played Britney Spears and another took on the role of Matt Gates. That's ridiculous. People are just targeting me because I defended Donald Trump. And what has Trump said in your defense? Uh, giggity squat. <laughs> so that sketch has had lots of people talking uh, about the future of the Republican Party after Trump and about what happens in Florida politics if Matt Gates is toppled by all this. But what caught my eye is a different angle, and that is the notion of a particular kind of politician who is happy to pass judgment on others who are seen not to be sufficiently uh, conforming to Christian values, who are then exposed as deeply flawed. And Matt Gates, if these allegations are true, fits that pattern. And uh, it really is a pattern, and it's one that goes back several decades, which is why I'm so glad that our guest on the podcast this week is someone who thinks really deeply about all this, and that is Peter Weiner, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre, uh, Washington, D.C. think tank, that works to clarify the ways in which moral and religious principles can and should shape public policy. He's worked for several Republican presidential administrations and wrote a book called The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic after Trump. And in that book, he argues at one point that any nation that elects Donald Trump to be its president has a very remarkably low view of politics. I began our conversation by asking him about his own experience, his own record, in the place where conservatism meets Christianity. So up until 2016 and Donald Trump, um, I was not only a lifelong Republican, but had really served Republican presidents and served the Republican cause. 
Philosophically, I've, I've been a conservative for most of my um, life, but as I got older, that was a political philosophy that, that I embraced as, as my own. And then as a person of the Christian faith, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I started to explore the faith at the end of high school and then into college. And um, well, it wasn't an, uh, an easy thing to do. That is central to, to who I am. And I try to have it inform my politics and my political philosophy, although it's uh, it's not always an, an easy match, and they're certainly separate and distinct spheres. I'm guessing there were some people you've served where you felt the two went together just fine. I mean, we, we're going to get onto where the two sort of collide and pull in different directions. But you know, off the top of my head, I'm I'm guessing you know you served for under Ronald Reagan and and Bush father and son. Uh, Bush Jr. certainly a very vocal Christian. When asked to name, he's the political philosopher who influenced him most. He said Jesus Christ. I mean, you, presumably in that period when you're serving, say, Bush Jr., you didn't feel there was a great conflict there between your faith and your politics. No, I didn't. It's a good question. Um, and I must say that in, in my political career, I've I've not been in a position in which I felt like my faith collided with my politics. I've tried to have, as I said, faith inform politics. I've never been a person who felt like the Bible was was a political handbook. And I wasn't working for, for somebody where I felt like there was an irreconcilable uh, difference between faith and, and politics. I, I should say, Jonathan, just so people know, from the earliest point that, that I can remember, actually the first thing I ever publicly wrote, it was to warn um, people about the the conflation of uh, of faith and politics. I was always very wary about it. I never viewed Christianity as primarily a political faith, certainly, or even a political instrument. And I was, I think, pretty alert to the dangers to both faith and politics if they became inflated. I always believed that Christianity should stand in judgment of all political ideologies and all political parties. So that conflation has has been a concern of mine and a consistent concern of mine. It's deeper now than it was then, but it's always been there. Ne- nevertheless, I'm, I'm guessing that it was partly your faith which informed your, I, I was about to say reluctance, but it was stronger than that. It was your refusal to back Donald Trump in 2016 and again in 2020 in a departure from many of your political colleagues, political friends, but also your fellow Christians who, whether or not they had to sort of swallow hard or hold their nose, they did back Trump. But you, partly, I'm guessing, because of your faith, didn't feel you could do that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I felt like Donald Trump was the antithesis of Christian ethic. I thought he embodied a kind of Nietzschean ethic, might makes right, the will to power, as, as Nietzsche talked about, his own character, and his public character and the way he conducted politics was an anathema to uh, to, to, to a Christian ethic. Um, and indeed, three weeks after he announced his candidacy, so this would have been the summer of 2015, I wrote a piece in the New York Times warning about Trump. As it turned out, my editor at the New York Times, a good friend of mine, uh, told me later that he had to push pretty hard to get that piece uh, warning about Trump in the Times just because they felt like, why are we spending it? Why would we spend any any ink or any space warning about Donald Trump? But most white evangelicals not only supported him, which I understood, that certainly wasn't my position. I understood voting for him. But honestly, Jonathan, what really troubled me was that they embraced him, that they were essentially Trump's sword and shield, that there was an enthusiasm for for him. And that, I thought, was an impossible um, circle to square. 
Well, the reason we're talking about this now, Peter Weiner, is because of the case of Matt Gates. Not that I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that he's been particularly overtly Christian in his politics, but rather that point you've made about the supporters and the, the wider sort of Christian evangelical movement and its support, first of all, for Donald Trump. But now in this case, the, it's been observed that a lot of the same people in that movement who normally would be very quick to condemn others have not really said an awful lot about Matt Gates. The question arises about a pattern that you can spot. I mean, and the, the case of Donald Trump and Matt Gates is where these sorts of figures who you would think evangelicals, Republicans, would be very, uh, Christians would be very quick to, to judge, but also actually, and this is the sort of deeper point, figures actually even within American Christianity and associated with the right, who in case after case are revealed as being, to put it very generously, deeply flawed, if not deeply compromised. And here I go back to a pattern that I spotted. It was, it was you know, well underway when I was in Washington, in, you know, back in the 1990s, whether it was, you know, Jimmy Swaggart, the television preacher. You can't outrun the Holy Spirit. You can't do it, alcoholic. You can't do it, drug addict. The Holy Ghost will follow you to hell and back to bring you to Jesus Christ. Who then it's revealed uh, was having sex with prostitutes or Jim Backer, I would say, with a double K. I will never forsake you. Sign God. Another televangelist who had to resign from his ministry over paying hush money to a church secretary who alleged rape, actually, not just a relationship, uh, which he more or less had to admit to, but actually she alleged rape. And even somebody I know you worked for, Bill Bennett, who authored a book called The Book of Virtues, was a, a voice of conscience, constantly judging others when I was in Washington, then revealed that he was a high-stakes gambler who had lost millions of dollars in Las Vegas. And I'm just wondering if these cases, is there a pattern here that is more than just a coincidence? Is there something that goes on in this section of American politics, which is, as I say, very quick to judge others and yet is deeply compromised itself? So that exists. Now, whether it ex exists within a Christian subculture more than the rest of, of the world, um, I, don't, I don't know, but it exists in a way that it certainly shouldn't and is contrary to the faith, then I would say there's the issue of Christian voters and, and um, public voices who use a completely different moral standard when it comes to Democrats and Republicans. Um, and that, that is a degree of, of, of hypocrisy, which is so blinding and apparent to me um, that I think it's simply undeniable. And just to bring it back to when you were in Washington, you will remember people like Al Mohler and the Southern Baptists passed a resolution uh, on the centrality of character in political leaders and especially presidents during the Bill Clinton scandal with Monica Lewinsky. I have lost no sleep worrying about the fact that Bill Clinton may have to be removed from office because of his conduct. I have lost tons of sleep thinking he may get away with what he did. And Republican after Republican after Republican and Christian after Christian after Christian use a moral two by four against Bill Clinton 
uh, indicting him, making the case that character and integrity were central uh, to the political enterprise. And it ought to be uh, almost primus inter paris, first among equals, when it comes to what you look for in political leaders. Then you had people like Newt Gingrich, who uh, had multiple affairs. And the right and these Christian leaders were mute because Gingrich was a leader of the so-called Republican Revolution in the 90s and was highly successful. And of course, it really reached its climax, in my estimation, with Donald Trump, who was a man of borderless corruptions, not just sexual. And yet, many of these uh, same people have uh, stood out in, in defense of Donald Trump. Um, and justified uh, everything that he's done or looked the other way and defended him. Somebody like Al Mohler, who's, who is a central figure in the Baptist, Southern Baptist world. Uh, in 2016, he said that he, he couldn't vote for Donald Trump under any circumstances. And if he did, he'd have to write a note of apology to Bill Clinton. Then in 2020, he announced that he would vote for Donald Trump. And he never sent that note of, of apology to, to, to Bill Clinton. You mentioned... Newt Gingrich, uh, we talked about the 1990s period, Bill Clinton. It was an amazing thing then, because obviously Bill Clinton was being impeached for, yes, lying under oath, but the lie related to his private life. And his first tormentor was Newt Gingrich, who had you know, famously abandoned one wife while she was in hospital for cancer treatment. And then I think he was driven out uh, from the Speaker's chair to be replaced by another man, Bob Livingston, who it turned out was similarly compromised. And, you know, we have this with Matt Gates now running, you know, happy to run with the family values crowd as a Republican. Let's just focus on those particular, the people who are themselves wrongdoers, if you like, in the language they would use. What is going on with that, where the people, the person feels able to go very directly to someone else's morality, accuse them of being unfit or of not honouring family values, when they themselves know, you know, that there is a moat in their own eye um, on this. Well, just explain that before we get to the larger point about the sort of indulgence. I mean, I, I've asked myself this, you've asked yourself this and others. Um, when you see people who, who stand for one thing and whose lives are a contradiction to what they say they stand for, the question becomes, how do people live with themselves? And I think the short version of this is that none of us um, lives well with cognitive dissonance in our own life. We just can't uh, handle this idea that we, we are at odds with who we think we are. And what happens when that occurs in individuals, as best I can tell, I think what psychology tells us, is that a whole series of complicated mechanisms kick in and the brain begins to rationalize different kinds of behavior. And it begins on smaller things, and then it builds on itself. And before long, you get a situation in which one can, can moralize about the infidelity of another person, of another party, even while engaging in infidelity themselves. And the interesting thing is that, that they somehow get away with it um, and that they can, can live with it. And I think people, when they themselves are within that trap and living within that lie and that contradiction, I think they become blind to it, but it's a dangerous thing and people need to be conscious of it. Uh, and you, you would think uh, that, that, uh, that people um, who are in high profile positions would be careful. I was in, having an email exchange with a conservative radio talk show host about this Matt Gates situation. And we have to say that the Gates situation is being investigated. So nothing's been proven yet. And there is a real investigation going on. And this person wrote me and said, I, I just find it hard to believe that a guy with a target on his back 
would engage in this kind of reckless behavior. And I wrote him back and I said, you're thinking about it the wrong way. People in power often begin to think they're immune uh, and that they're invulnerable and that they can't be taken down. Um, but in the end, that, that, that isn't the case. We're, we're all vulnerable to one degree or another. Yeah, and of course, this doesn't only affect Christians. Just as a perfect example, you could draw on Gary Hart in the 1980s, just at the very moment he was under scrutiny for his personal life, presidential candidate for the Democrats said to the press, you know, you follow me, you see see if I'm misbehaving. And sure enough, they did and saw him on uh, with a woman who was not his wife on board a boat, which memorably was named Monkey Business. That's right. um, and so it's not just a Christian thing, but I suppose there's some degree of surprise that, you know, Christians of all people, given that, and also it's a particular kind of Christian that we're talking about, very, as I said, very judgmental. But let, let's just talk about the politics of it a bit more. What do you think explains that poll number, which was, and I think you sort of alluded to it, it is fascinating that you know, 2011, long before anyone had really ever heard of Donald Trump or thought about him politically, uh, there was a poll conducted that said 60% of white evangelicals believed that a public official who commits an immoral act in their personal life, I'm quoting here, cannot still behave ethically and fulfil their duties in their public and professional life. So a decade ago, most white evangelical Christians thought your the personal was political. Come October 2016, the same organisation more or less asked the same questions in a poll after the uh, infamous Access Hollywood tape in which Donald Trump was heard bragging about grabbing women. And now only one-fifth, nearly two-thirds before, now only 20% of evangelicals say, yep, private immorality counts. Now it doesn't matter. I mean, what accounts for that, that pragmatic willingness to say, to reverse yourself on your previous position uh, and say, well, if it's my party, the guy's wearing, you know, a red rosette, that's good enough. We're going to we're going to drop the morality. Donald Trump's our guy. For some people, I think it's out and out cynicism. Um, but for other people, the more complicated and I suppose the more interesting and, and in some respects, I suppose also the most more alarming, many uh, white evangelical Christians, not all, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge movement and it's got complexities and nuances within it. But for an awful lot of white evangelical Christians, there has been a brewing um, resentment, sense of grievance that has characterized that movement, as well as growing fear. So there's this combination of resentments, of feeling that, that the elite culture has patronized them and condescended them, over, over the years, over the decades. And I think there's something to that. I think it's overblown, but I think there's something to that. And then along comes Donald Trump and he wins the nomination. So he becomes the representative of the party that has the same enemies that they have. And Trump becomes the leader of that movement, the leader of that tribe. They feel like they need to support him, that he's an imperfect general in an army that has to win. There is a, a, a thing that social scientists refer to in this country, and this may be true in the, in the United Kingdom as well, which is affective polarization. And it's the idea that what, what binds you to the people on your side is less affinity with your side than hatred for the other side. And so with Donald Trump, they saw somebody uh, that, that had a certain brutality in politics that they thought would protect them. And I wonder if 
there's almost a theological justification, which is, you know, the Almighty moves in mysterious ways and may choose as his instrument a flawed vessel like Donald Trump. But that's all, but that's just, you know, that doesn't in any way mitigate the sort of divine nature of the plan just because he's chosen this flawed, fallen individual. Yeah, that's that's a deep insight. I mean, this manifests itself in various ways. One was the so-called Cyrus defense, which was the, the some Christians use this, which is Cyrus was a Persian king in, in, in the Hebrew scripture who himself was not Jewish but um, and was not a person of God, but he defended uh, the Jews against persecution. So he became a celebrated and revered figure. And, you know, from my perspective, there's there's figure after figure in, in both in the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament who were flawed figures who ended up serving God well and honorably. And that is supposed to be a source, I would say, of, of comfort. Unfortunately, what happened in the case of Donald Trump is that those figures were invoked in a kind of cynical way to take a person who was who clearly had not, to use a Christian term, repented or, or turned from his ways. But they used it again as part of this elaborate justification to, to try and explain how they themselves, given their previous views and their own convictions, could support a person who was antithetical to those very convictions. In a way, what we're describing with white evangelical Christianity in the current in 21st century America isn't really Christianity as we would previously have understood it, but a kind of muscular America's number one, and actually much less to the teachings of Christ in the gospel about compassion and turning the other cheek and forgiveness, that actually it's not really Christianity that, as we would previously have understood it. And then once you think about it like that, there's much less of a contradiction. I think it's it's a it's a complicated mix. I mean, these are these are sort of barnacles that have have latched themselves onto the hull of a Christian ship. And what's happened is Christianity, as as understood by by the Gospels and the life of Jesus, and Jesus and and the Sermon on the Mount and the entire ethic of loving your enemy, this notion of a kind of an inversion in Christianity. There was strength and powerlessness. Um, and and that worldly power was 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 not the key, certainly to to the to the kingdom of God. So I think what's happened is you know everybody who's a person of the Christian faith, like everyone who's not a person of the Christian faith, takes on within themselves certain cultural tendencies and 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 views life through a certain kind of cultural prism. People have engrafted sort of anti-Christian elements. Uh, within the Christian faith, just as you described it, and really turn it into something that it's that it's not. And you watch this step by step as kind of a fascinating process. But I would say the end result, when you look at it, is pretty uh, alarming. As a here speaking as a person of the Christian faith, to take the the ethic and the life of of Jesus, which has captured the hearts and imaginations of people for millennia. And somehow turned that person and that faith into a brutal, weaponized political instrument. Listening to you, Peter, and it makes great sense to me. I just wonder what whether you are a very small minority or whether you feel as if many of your fellow Christians are having a similar kind of reckoning. And whether in some ways one of the worries that people like you might have 
would be over what stories like, you know, Matt Gates in a way is a standing for a whole lot of the other things we've been talking about, but what effect they may be having on the the sort of prospects for faith in the United States. I know there was a poll just last week for a Gallup poll, very striking, that said only 47% of the US population are, in this jargon, churched, you know, members of a church or a mosque or a synagogue which is down from 70% just two decades ago. And whether or not you and people of faith like you are worried that this very visible contradiction, to put it gently, hypocrisy, to put it less gently, is having an effect, is rubbing off and turning people off faith itself in the United States. Oh, it's 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 a deep worry of mine. And to be honest, Jonathan, I've been I've been ringing this bell for five years. I was basically saying to people of the Christian faith, if you embrace this person as a as a political leader, as a political figure, as someone to 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 celebrate, it's going to have massive negative effects on your Christian witness. And it has. And I've had conversations with pastors in all parts of the country. I I know a lot of pastors, a lot of theologians, and I've gotten notes from people who have used the phrase generational catastrophe, which of course is is a tragic irony because if you talk to people who are Christian and particularly people who are Christian leaders, they would say that the most important thing in their life is and should be the the testimony of their faith. Does their life uh, represent a kind of integrity that would uh, in, in turn represent the faith, Christian faith. I will say that there are an awful lot of white evangelicals that I, that I know who have been disturbed, uh, troubled by Trump throughout the process, many of them pastors, but they didn't really know how to handle it because they, did, they themselves have never been particularly political in the pulpit and they uh, didn't want to turn their ministry into, into a political ministry. And so on an individual case-by-case basis, I get that. But the, the problem is the aggregate, which is because there were so few voices who spoke up against Trump in the context of faith, it's completely reasonable for a watching world to look at it and say, well, since there are all these prominent figures, Robert Jeffress, Eric Metaxas, Franklin Graham, John MacArthur, Jerry Falwell Jr., Ralph Reed, Mike Huckabee, defending Trump so enthusiastically, and there's so few voices that are that are speaking up against him that this must represent what the what the evangelical world is and i think that there's been a real real cost to that peter wayner author of the death of politics how to heal our frayed republic after trump thanks so much for talking to us on the podcast thanks jonathan i enjoyed it very much take care and that is all from me for this week. Before I go, I want to ask you what you would like to hear us cover. Is there something about US politics that you'd love to know more about and would like to hear us tackle? Send any questions or suggestions our way. You can email them to podcasts at theguardian.com or contact me directly on Twitter. My handle there is at Friedland with a double E. And of course, for anyone wanting to catch up on what's happening in British politics and UK politics, search the Politics Weekly feed for Wednesday's episode, where this week Raphael Bear brings us all the latest. Until next week, though, it is goodbye from me. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe and thanks, as always, for listening. Thank you.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus, we bring the world together. Our aircraft connects communities, facilitating cross-cultural communication. Our satellite technology enables communication across the world and allows us to explore space, expanding human knowledge to create a better future on Earth. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at airbus.com.